Keep your Bibles open, if you would, to uh, Matthew 23, but mark for me uh, Ephesians 2, because we will we'll look back at uh, several verses in Ephesians 2 while we're studying through uh, these verses in Matthew 23. So we're picking up where we left off about three weeks ago, and uh, kind of bringing, uh, finishing up this chapter together today. Let's pray, pause one more time, and just ask for the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we do love you and praise you and We've already mentioned that this is the month of Thanksgiving and we're making plans toward our Thanksgiving service and looking at our treasure verse and and already reminded, Father, of so many things to be thankful for. We've watched this video that of people who just now, just now in this year have have just received and have seen for the first time your word to them in their language. What a beautiful, wonderful thing. And so we're so thankful today for our Bible, and we're so thankful today for a facility like this, a building that we can gather and and we can worship together, we can assemble as the people of God here at Grassy Pond, and we can look to you, we can declare things about you through song, and we can hear your word proclaimed and, and explained and applied. We can seek you in our prayers, we can praise you with our offerings. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing just to be here. Beyond the fellowship, Lord, and the encouragement, the privilege, and the joy is that when we do gather, Lord, we know that you are in the midst of your people and you are working and your spirit is speaking and you are applying the word and and you are building our faith and increasing our faith. You are challenging us. You are convicting us. You are encouraging us, each and every one, exactly what we need, providing daily bread every day. And so we gather here, Lord, seeking, Father, not only to worship you, but to hear from you. We look to a passage of Scripture that's speaking a lot of woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, Lord. Help us to not then conclude that there's really nothing much here for us today because your word is, all, is alive and it's always relevant and there's, there's an application for each of us. We may be surprised, we may be challenged, we may be edified in, in, uh, in a surprising way, an unexpected way today. We just ask God that you would speak, that we would hear, that your spirit, Lord, would be in charge and your word would go forward and not return void that you would build your church and we will be careful to praise you for all that you accomplish as we simply submit to you today 
In Christ's name, amen. Well, Matthew 23, we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings, and we've made it to 23. 23 is basically a a sermon of woes. There, There are seven woes, and we've already looked at the first four in verses 13 through 24. We're looking at the last three uh, woes this morning. Jesus here, a a woe, we we said last time, a woe is a pronouncement of judgment. It's the the opposite of the blessed as we find in the Beatitudes. The the blessed are uh, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Those blesseds are referring to, they're describing the lives of believers. And so that blessed is indicating spiritual, eternal, overflowing, everlasting blessing. Well, the opposite is true of the woe. The the woes are being pronounced uh, upon those who are not true believers, who do not hold the faith, who are not inheriting heaven because they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those woes carry with them eternal ruin, eternal condemnation, eternal judgment because of a rejection of the grace of God and the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, the salvation of God in Christ Jesus, and turning to self instead. So that's what these woes are about. They are pronouncements of judgment because that's precisely where false religion leads. False religion ends with judgment. And that's why last time we were in this chapter, and now this is kind of part two of that sermon, the title is, Why Absolute Truth is So Absolutely Important. Because eternity is at stake. This, this is an eternal discussion. Jesus brings that to the forefront throughout this chapter as well. Remember, we talked about last time, false religion does not have to be a major world religion like Hinduism or Buddhism to be a false religion. Any departure from the gospel of Jesus Christ is a false path, and it leads to the dead end of eternal ruin. Any deviation from the eternal, absolute truth of God's Word is a false path, and it leads to emptiness and and death rather than fullness and life. The world is filled with all kinds of solutions for life and all kinds of philosophies and ideas for how to live this life and how to view life and how to view the world. And what do what to believe about yourself and what to believe about God and what to think about the afterlife. Everything from best-selling books to coffee mugs printed with clichés on them. We, the, the world is, is full of, of many paths and it preaches many sermons. We, we hear sermons more than on Sundays. We hear sermons every day. The world is preaching a message. A message is being carried to us, presented to us. In many different venues, in many different methods, each and every day at every turn. 
The Bible presents to us one path. The Bible preaches one way and proclaims that this one way is the only way. So either the Bible is false and one or more of these hundreds of other ways of the world is true or the Bible is true and every other path that promises life is false. Let us be reminded again of the words of Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's really why absolute truth is so absolutely important. So in the first four woes, we learn that false religion, false ideas will keep you from heaven. False religion will offer spirituality, but it lacks substance. False religion will offer a set of rules, but it will not accomplish true righteousness before the Lord. So let's see then and learn together in these final three woes about false religion. False religion, number one, false religion can only provide a spiritual facade. It's powerless to do the real work of transformation. And we see this in verses 25 and 26 when Jesus is talking about you clean the outside of the cup, you clean the outside of the plate, but the inside of the cup, the inside of the plate, the inside, the most important side in terms of eternity, is left in filth. And I'm assuming you're like me when you go to prepare, like when I go home for lunch today and I get ready to prepare my plate for lunch I will not reach into the sink and find a dirty dish and a dirty cup and then prepare my plate. I will reach for the cabinet where the clean plates and clean cups have been stored. And that's what Jesus is illustrating here. It's it's an illustration that he's using to make the point. False religion is able to clean up the outside to provide a a facade of spirituality, a sense of, of being spiritual, of being connected to the universe, of being connected to God, of, of being connected to a path of life. It, it, it presents a facade of spirituality, but it fails in doing the real work of transformation on the inside. Transformation. False religions will send you on journeys and, and will do things like assign a chant for you to utter thousands of times over and over. So false religion does a good job of keeping you busy. It, it will keep you busy with, with spiritual assignments and spiritual activities. But once you've gone on your journey and once you've uttered all of the mantra, you're still the same person on the inside you were when you started your journey. When you started your prayer chain, 
false paths, not just religion, but false paths and ideas, they, they will provide a, a momentary sense of, of freedom, a momentary sense of excitement and, and, and life. But eventually that facade begins to, to fade right back to where you began when you started on that false path with a, with a sense of emptiness and a, and a sense of a void in your soul that you thought that path would fill that you thought that path was the answer to, but turns out after walking down that path, sometimes 10, 20, 30, 40 years of your life, you find out that false path simply can't provide what I was looking for all along. Cleanliness on the, on the outside then is not necessarily indicative of cleanliness on the inside. A religion or philosophy that, that starts on the outside and tries to work its way in is really, is really never sufficient for the heart change that is required, the heart change that's so necessary on the inside, the transformation of the, of the core of who we are. The problem here, the issue with false religion and false ideas is that flesh is powerless to transform the spiritual. Fleshly realms and, and fleshly tools and, and, and fleshly steps and methods and ideas are powerless to do the work that's required in the, on the spiritual side of who God created us, how God created us. It takes a spiritual, it takes a spiritual force to transform the spirit within us. When someone, you know this, when someone dresses up nice, wears a nice outfit, we joke and we say, well, you sure clean up good. Well, that's the problem with false religion. That's, that's all it can do. That's all it's able to do. It's merely an external cleaning, and it, it leaves the heart in its, in its deadness and filthiness and and sin. But the gospel, the gospel works from the inside out. That's the difference between false paths and religion and, and true relationship and reconciliation with God through Christ. The gospel works from the inside out. God, the Bible teaches that God in grace reaches down into our very being, into our very heart, and transforms it. The, the scripture says that, that, the, that, that God in grace reaches in and takes out our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. That means a heart that's alive and beating and warm and directed to the glory of God. God gives us new hearts that, that beat for his glory, that find his purpose, that, that rejoice in his glory. And once our heart has been set right, the life then begins to follow. And that life is a, is a whole lifetime journey of following Christ on into we finally reach and are reunited with him in glory. That lifespan is called sanctification, being constantly set apart more and more as we journey with the Lord in this life. It's a completely different path. It's a completely different message. It's a completely different gospel. 
than anything else we will ever encounter or anything else the world can offer. It's the power of the gospel alone that can cleanse us, that can cleanse the inside of a person. We, we, can, try to, we can try to reform the outside of a person and, and change the behavior mode of the outside of the person, but the inner desire, the inner person, we have no capability of changing. But that's exactly where God does his work on the inside. That's exactly where the gospel centers in on a person, on the inside. And once the inside is cleansed, then then changes begin to take place on the outside. The gospel begins to work its way, to flesh its way out on the outside of a person. And that's, that's why when we're talking about coming to know the Lord, being saved, finding the forgiveness of Christ, we say you don't, we, you don't wait. We don't wait until we get our life right and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus as the sinners that we are, the sinners that he died for. And when we come to him, he transforms us. He does the work that we could never do. If we wait till we're right to come to Jesus, we'll never come. Because there's no resource that we have or nothing that the world has that can do that work. But here's the work of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old passed away, and behold, the new has come. False religion is powerless to transform, but the gospel is the power of a new creation, an absolute new you in Christ. That's the first woe, or that would be the fifth woe. The sixth woe... Point two of the sermon, false religion can only provide an appearance of life. It's powerless to raise the dead. We see that in verses 27 and 28. Now, this is almost the same point as the previous woe, but it goes not just a little further. It goes a lot further in the point that Jesus is making here. So he's not just saying the same thing twice. He's, he's saying kind of the same thing, but with a sharper, keener focus. You see, our fundamental problem is actually not, is actually not that we sin. Now, that's a huge problem for us because sin separates us from God. Sin blinds us to the, the, the truth of the Lord, the grace of God. Sin wearies us and, and uh, sin leads us down a path of broken promises to destroy us. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. Sin is ugly and dirty and, and it hurts us and, and it, it causes us to hurt others. Sin never produces anything good in the long term, ever. It's never done that. That's not its nature. So sin is a horrible condition, and we're all sinners. 
We're all born in sin. But the Bible reveals that we are spiritually dead on the inside. That's the root of the problem. It's actually because we are spiritually dead, that's why we sin. Look with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Keep your place there. And Matthew will keep flipping back from Ephesians 2 to Matthew 23. And I want you to see what Paul says here in Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2. He's speaking to believers. So right here in chapter 2, he's talking about their previous life as an unbeliever. And he says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The reason why we live as sinners is because we are spiritually dead. We are dead to the things of God. We are dead to the things of life. We are dead to the things of truth. And therefore, the only thing we can do is pursue the things of death. And that's what we do. We choose sin over the Lord. We reject Christ over embracing Christ. We choose ourself over the truth. We, we are constantly choosing anything, going any path other than the path of life in Christ. Now, false religion and false ideas, they can wash the outside. Jesus says you're like, you're like whitewashed tombs. But the outside is not the root. False religion can give you a smile, but it cannot give you eternal joy. False religion can give you a way to live, but it cannot give you life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The gospel is the only cure for the fundamental problem of the human condition. The gospel is the power of God to raise the dead, to reach inside the whitewashed tomb of the heart and actually raise the dead to life rather than just cover it up. From the outside. Look with me again, Ephesians 2. I want you to see this in verses 4 and 5. So Paul has talked about their life previously before Christ, and now he talks about verse 4 what God has done in their lives. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the power of the gospel. When we embrace Christ, we come alive. Our spirits are revived and resurrected and restored. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sin, blinded in the, in, the, in the way of sin and darkness. 
When we find Christ, we find life, abundant life here, eternal life forevermore. That is simply something a false path can never do for you. Now, a false path will make a lot of promises and it will accomplish a lot of things temporary in your life, but it will never provide on the inside a resurrection and deliverance from the power and clutches of sin and darkness. It can never do it. A false path can make you happy for now, but it will never make you holy forever. It may give you some pleasure, but it will keep you from paradise. I was thinking about this, Christ talking about, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look all pretty on the outside, you're dead on the inside. That's the way we are as sinners before Christ. The world is like those who buried Lazarus. When they buried Lazarus, the best that they could do was just wrap new cloths around his body that's the best the world can do is wrap some new cloths around your body around us wrap some new cloths around that dead heart but that's it the heart stays dead the person stays dead they've got new cloths on but jesus through the gospel stands outside of the tomb of lazarus's heart and says, Lazarus, come forth. That's what Christ can do. He can bring us to life in him. Raised to new life. We need to really let that settle in our hearts, believers, today. And understand exactly what we're seeing over and over when we view baptism. That we're saying you have been raised to new life in Christ. We're saying that you used to be dead. You used to be dead. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians. Now remember church, you used to be dead. But God, because of his great love for us, even when we were dead and living in absolute rebellion against him, He just made us alive. He just raised us from the dead. By grace. The power of the gospel. False religion is powerless to raise the dead. Third point of the sermon, seventh woe of chapter 23. False religion fails to see its own failure. And therefore only continues its dead end path. Blind, a blind man, a blind man in sin cannot see his way, so he'll just keep going the way he's going. In verses 29 through 36, here the, the Pharisees claim that they, they are not of the same vein. Um, well, they claim to be of the same vein as the righteous men and the prophets of the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is saying. You, you claim that, that you're of the same of, of the righteous people and the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. And many of them were persecuted and martyred. But Jesus is saying, in actuality, you're not of the same vein as the righteous 
people of the Old Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament, you're actually of the same vein of those who persecuted them and even martyred them. That's, you're in that tradition. That's the baton you've picked up and that you are carrying in your life and in your view, on your path. This Zechariah we see here in verse 35, he was killed for his testimony in the book of 2 Chronicles. So if you'll recall, we've, we've mentioned a few times the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. In the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles is the last book. The books are arranged, same number of books, same books, but they're arranged different in the Hebrew, the original version of the Old Testament scripture, and 2 Chronicles is the last book. And so Abel, we find him in the first opening chapters of Genesis, right? He's, he's the first murder in the scripture, in the history of the world. That's in Genesis. Zechariah is in 2 Chronicles. First man, first righteous man killed, last righteous man killed throughout all of the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus is saying from the first to the last, that, that whole tradition of those who hated righteous people just because they were righteous, who, who, who envied and, and, and hated and, and rejected those who were of the true faith simply because they were of the true faith and, and even persecuted some and imprisoned some and tortured some and even martyred some. Those are the ones... The very ones sent from God, the ones who oppose them, that, that's who you're like. And indeed, the Pharisees would be the ones that would go on to see to it that Jesus was crucified. They would continue to martyr the disciples of Jesus after the resurrection of Jesus. They would continue their quest to silence the gospel on into the early days of the church beyond the New Testament. We learned a little bit about that when we talked about Polycarp a few weeks ago. Most of the opposers of Polycarp in the town of Smyrna were Jews. So what Jesus is saying is true. The reason why we can't escape the, the clutches and the chains of false religions and ideologies is because they blind us to our own sin. They, they blind us to the truth. And that's why salvation is by grace and grace alone and not of our doing. Look back with me again one more time to Ephesians 2. You know this verse well, probably. We'll read verse 8 and 9. So Paul says, you're dead. God in love made you alive. Now he kind of gives a doctrinal statement for it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the power of the true gospel. The power of Christ is the power of grace and the power of God. 
The problem with us as sinners is that we will always believe we are right. We always believe we are right. We are, we, even as, as, as saved sinners, our, our default assumption is that we are right. I'm right, you're wrong. I got it right, you got it wrong. I see it right, you see it wrong. I didn't mean to do that, you did. I mean, it's, we're, we're, by default, we're in the right. Someone else is in the wrong. Until God in grace sheds the light of truth in our hearts and we begin to understand that we are indeed sinners and that we desperately need a Savior. And when we get to that point, the Spirit and the Word of God has brought us to that point that we see we are desperately in need of a Savior. We're broken. We're sinners. We're not right with God We need salvation. At that point, we're ready for the gospel, for Christ to step into our lives and do exactly for us what no one and nothing else can. Salvation. After these woes, then, Jesus makes a statement, the last point of the sermon, confronting false religion with truth is not indicative of of a lack of compassion, but rather a sign of it. Verses 37 through 39. And we need to hear this over and over and over again, especially in the day in which we live. When any disagreement at all is viewed as bigotry or hatred, and when there's so much Division, the lack of ability to dialogue and discuss differences is hurting us, it's not helping us. When you read chapter 23, well, when you come through all of these woes, you see Jesus uses some pretty harsh and blunt language to rebuke the Pharisees. He, he calls them hypocrites. Serpents, and by when he when he when Jesus calls them serpents, he means you're 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 the little guys, you're the babies of the big guy, the big serpent. Serpents, vipers, blind guides. You may wonder, wow, I, I never I never thought about Jesus speaking this harshly, speaking this uh, bluntly, forthrightly. Remember who he's addressing. Remember who his audience is for these woes. He's talking to those who are willingly defiant over and over. He spent his entire ministry preaching to them, teaching to them, showing them, and they have over and over again opposed and rejected and plotted and planned and tried to distract, and tried to question, and tried to tear down, and tried to discredit. He's talking to those who are willingly defiant, who not only oppose him, but they desire to do away with him, and not only him, but all of his followers. And not only that, but they, in their rejection of Christ, and in their parade of their false religion, they they are leading multitudes away. They are blind guides of the blind. 
And they need to hear in the clearest, strongest, sharpest language that hell is at stake for them if they continue in their determined refusal to repent and believe. They need to hear a woe now instead of when they stand before, to just hear it for the first time when they stand before the Lord. So sometimes there's a need for just clear, strong truth. But hard truth is not indicative of a lack of compassion. That's why it's so, it's so revealing here that when Jesus, when Jesus finishes these seven woes back to back, that the next thing that happens is that he says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often I, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Jesus laments in these verses the hardened refusal of the gospel. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, because that's representative of the nation of Israel as a whole who, has, who rejected Christ. God in the flesh was, was there walking on their soil, going in and out of their towns. He was, he was there. He had come to seek and save the lost, and they were lost, and he had life. They were dead. He was the resurrection. He was right there. He, he could have gathered them, but they were not willing They just would not let go of self. They just would not turn from another path. They were right. Christ was wrong. They just were not willing. The gospel calls us to speak the truth in love. We are to do so to those around us who are caught up in false religion, who are walking down false paths, who have embraced false ideologies. But even when we speak the truth and even when we do so in love, and by the way, it's it's loving for Jesus to say these woes. Even when we speak the truth in love, praying that our loved ones and friends will repent and believe and be saved, there, there will be times that, that we will be outcast, we will be shunned, we will be hated, we will be labeled. And it will be because we love enough to speak the truth. We love others enough to pay the price, to count the cost. Because so much is at stake. So much is at stake. Just as Jesus does, compassion compels us to share the gospel. The consequence for those we know and those we love is too grave not to. And that's why Jesus says in verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. That's all you have. You don't see it. 
but that's all you have. And it's nothing. Then in verse 39, in closing, he says, I tell you the truth. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What he's speaking of there is not that they'll never visually, physically see him. He's speaking of when they will actually see him. And he's referring to his second coming. After they have crucified Jesus, they, they won't see him again until his second coming, at which time the time for repentance and the time for faith will have passed. So better to hear seven woes now and repent. Better to hear the truth now and repent. Better to hear the gospel now and find life than never hear and therefore never repent until we see the Lord coming. All of us will stand before the Lord and we'll hear one of two things. Blessed are you. Or woe to you. A pronouncement of eternal blessing or a pronouncement of eternal woe. That's why we are compelled to share the truth in love. I want to give you an example. I just finished reading this book, A Change of Affection by Beckett Cook, subtitled, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, or if you know someone who does, I really commend this book to you. It's the testimony. It's Beckett's testimony. He was a fashion set designer in Hollywood, and he was, uh, from very early in his life, he believed that he was gay. He was attracted to other men, And uh, he became very famous because he was very good at what he did. And he rubbed shoulders with some of the, uh, he names all of the names in one of these chapters of people that he's associated with, partied with, worked for. And it's an incredible list of today's A-list of uh, the big Hollywood elite. And he was in a relationship after relationship with men, and every time he was in a relationship, he would think, this is the one, this is, this is my life, this is, this is where I'm going to find life. And uh, it would eventually end, and he would be back where he began, and after it happened over and over again, he was searching, he was empty, he didn't realize it. He comes across a Christian at a coffee shop. He can't believe the he can't believe he sees a guy in LA with his Bible open at a coffee shop. So he goes over to kind of antagonize him a little bit and ends up the spirit's actually using that conversation, using his arrogance actually. And he's beginning to work in Beckett's heart, and the guy says, Well then why don't you just come to church with me? And he wrestled with it for about a month and a half, and he finally one Sunday found himself in that church. The pastor's preaching from Romans of all places. 
And he leaves that service completely transformed, completely changed, new creation. He begins, a, he begins thirsting for gospel truth. He begins reading the scriptures, reading every Christian book he can get his hands on. He's being discipled by uh, men at the church, being discipled by the pastor. He's growing in the Lord. He still, from time to time, wrestles with the temptation of same-sex attraction. But he understands what pleases God and what gives greater joy. And he says in here time and time again that he's, he, he denies himself when that temptation comes his way. He denies himself because he's found a greater joy. He's found life. He's found eternal glory. He's not, he says he, he's giving up the temporary pleasure for eternal treasure. And he talks about trying to share his faith with others and and to his surprise, he thought when he first, because all of he and his friends, all of he and his friends who were, they were all uh, gay and they, they, they all thought Christians were the enemies. They all thought Christians hated them. They knew that Christians believed that homosexuality was a sin. So they thought Christians were against them from the beginning. And, and so he thought when he became a Christian, how in the world is he going to go back to his friends and tell them about what God has done in his life and what God can do in their lives? And actually he found that some of them were actually searching too. And some of them came to Christ, some of them didn't. So on the very last page, he shares that he's shared his faith on several occasions with one of his ex-boyfriends who lived in New York. And he finally just texted him the following. On the last day, you will understand how much I love you. On the last day, you will understand how much I love you. What he meant by that is that's why I'm sharing the gospel with you. That's why I want you to find the joy in the life that I have found. That's why I resist following a life of homosexual indulgence. Because it's not the path of life. And I'd rather you have life than have a boyfriend. False religion simply cannot do. False ideas simply cannot do what only the gospel can. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world that's so inundated with false ideas and false messages and false paths and false religions. And we hear these messages and we're confronted with them and we see them and we hear them and we experience them and we have friends who are involved in them and, and on and on and on and family who are involved in them and it just becomes an easy thing to say, well, maybe that's not so wrong. Your word is so clear to us today. There is one way. 
There is one life. There is one salvation. There is one path, and it is Christ. So for those of us who are in Christ today, as we, as we go into this time of response, Lord, if we are in Christ, we should be absolutely rejoicing the ceiling off of this place because that means we used to be dead and now we are alive and it's only by grace. It's nothing we've done. We should be on our faces with humility, leaping with joy in our hearts because of your grace shed upon us. And then there's another experience we should have, and that's the experience of an overwhelming sense of burden and urgency and love and compassion for those around us who are walking down a path that's not going to provide life. In actuality, will eventually provide death. We pray, God, that you would work in their hearts, and if so be it, that you would use us as an instrument, Lord, to share the love of Christ, to, to be in a, in a gospel relationship with them where they see the Lord in us and hear the Lord from us, that they might be rescued from their deadness and trespasses and sins, that, Lord, you would use us or you would use someone, but we should be fasting and praying for their soul. Our, we, should, we, we should be spread out on our face begging for you to do a work of grace in their heart and their life to rescue them from darkness, rescue them from a pronouncement of woe into a pronouncement of blessed. And we may be here, Lord, we may be gathered this morning and be among those who have given our lives to a false religion, given our lives to a false message, a false way. And we've realized this morning that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is what we've been looking for. Jesus can do what nothing or no one else can do. He can bring us to life, reconcile us to you, give us hope and eternal joy. May we come today and find in Christ everything we're looking for. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.